This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Jane's been dreaming of a baby, which means bad news is coming. So she isn't surprised when Bessie's husband, the carriage driver of Gateshead, shows up one day at Thornfield dressed in mourning clothes. John Reed is dead, most likely suicide after burying himself in gambling debts. And now Mrs. Reed is dying from the shock and is asking for Jane Eyre. Jane decides immediately that she has to go to where she's been called. She goes to find Mr. Rochester to arrange for permission. She has to pull him away from a billiard game with Blanche Ingram. He then says yes, that Jane can go to her dying aunt, but he's begrudging about it. He also makes her promise that she'll come back, and he in turn has to promise her that when he gets married, Adele will be sent to school and Jane will leave for a new job. They agree, and Jane sets off to visit the dying Mrs. Reed. Jane arrives at Gateshead. But before the big boss fight, she has another level to get through. She has to deal with her cousins, Georgiana and Eliza. Neither of them offer Jane anything, not to sit down or to have something to drink or even a room to stay. Jane tells us that a year ago, it would have bothered her to be treated thus, and she would have left in a fit of rage. But now, now she is Rochester and Thornfield, and so it doesn't bother her that she's been treated like crap here at Gateshead. She just goes and asks for what she needs from the servants and picks a room for herself. Then she goes and visits Mrs. Reed in her room. The room is frighteningly similar to how Jane remembers it from nine years ago. Jane only notices one change in the decor of the room. The switch that Mrs. Reed used to beat Jane with when she was quote-unquote bad is no longer sitting in the corner. It takes days to have a coherent conversation with Mrs. Reed, but Jane does eventually have it. Jane, by the way, is calling Mrs. Reed Aunt Reed, even though she said that she would never call her aunt again. And Jane desperately tries to get Aunt Reed to believe that Jane forgives her, but Aunt Reed will have none of it. She's beckoned Jane for one reason and one reason only. It turns out that Aunt Reed got a letter three years ago from a John Eyre, Jane's uncle on the other side of the family. John Eyre writes that he has made enough money and would like for Jane to come and live with him. He also wants Jane to inherit his wealth when he dies one day. Mrs. Reed responded to him, saying that Jane Eyre was dead. She had died at Lowood from typhus. Jane asks why she would do that, and Mrs. Reed says quite plainly that it was because she hates Jane and could not stand the idea of Jane being happy. She hated Jane as a baby, and she hated that her husband cared about Jane, and she hated Jane's personality, and she hated it when Jane yelled at her when Jane was a child. But now that she's dying, she wants to do what's right. So she's telling Jane the truth. Tie up the loose moral ends of her life. She confesses to Jane, but is still awful to her. 
I asked Amy Hollywood, professor of Christian studies at Harvard Divinity School, about what Mrs. Reed is up to in this scene. Why beckon Jane to her deathbed, make a confession, and then be so mean about it? So there's an anxiety about what Christianity is. And I think that gets represented and is represented theologically throughout the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century as a false religion of the law over against a religion of the heart. But the crisis is about what what it is to be Christian, is to be Christian to do your duty as far as you are able. Is that enough? Will that save you? Or does it have to be done with love in order for it to be saving and to be truly Christian? And obviously, Charlotte Bronte thought the latter, right? And so the whole novel is a kind of, I mean, it's a lot of things, but one of the things it's doing is performing how that religion of the heart, her own anger is transformed through her love. She is a different person than she was nine years before. She says she, she is let go of her anger against Aunt Reed, which I don't believe, but she says she has. And, that, and, and that's the sign of her true Christianness. Jane turns the other cheek for Mrs. Reed, forgiving her again and again so Mrs. Reed can die in peace. Instead, Mrs. Reed dies in pain and alone, refusing to hold Jane's hand, telling Jane that she's crushing her. Mrs. Reed dies without even the paid nurse by her side. Jane's loving, passionate Christian heart is given peace and the law-abiding Mrs. Reed, who finally on her deathbed does the right thing, but not in a feeling way, gets a painful end. This is our second of two deathbed scenes in the novel. And the Helen Burns deathbed scene and the Mrs. Reed one couldn't be more different from one another. Helen tells Jane to get into bed with her. Mrs. Reed won't even let Jane hold her hand. Here is Dr. Hollywood again on the difference between these two death scenes and why the difference matters. Helen, Helen, Helen Burns is going straight to heaven. Like she's, she's got, you know, there's no waiting around. There's no, she's practically there already. You know what I mean? And because her goodness and her love is so intense that everywhere she is, is already heavenly for her. So she can be in the, in the midst of this horrible boarding school being tortured. And she just doesn't, it doesn't matter because she's so preternaturally at peace with herself and at the world. So her deathbed scene is almost, it's almost like she doesn't die because she's already so at peace that it's just a passing from one place of peacefulness to another. And that, and that's the ideal towards which young angry Jane submits herself, right? I mean, Helen is the person who converts her to the right kind of Christianity. And it's by trying to follow Helen's example that she is transformed and that then can set up the death scene with Aunt Reed, where we can see the enormous difference between the way Aunt Reed died and the way Helen died. And also how much Jane has changed such that she can respond to Aunt Reed the way she does. I don't know if I agree with Professor Hollywood that Helen is necessarily the reason that Jane is so changed. Jane has told us in this chapter that she's changed deeply in the last year. That a year ago, before knowing Rochester, she would have stormed out of Gateshead, offended by Eliza and Georgiana's rudeness. She tells Mrs. Reed that she is a different person than she was nine years ago. But because we missed eight of those nine years, as they were described in just one paragraph, it begs the question, did Jane change in the eight years at Lowood that we missed? Or is it Rochester's love that has changed her? What is clear is that Helen's death and Aunt Reed's deaths are entirely different, even though both women technically have clear consciences. Little happens in chapter 22. Jane stays at Gateshead at the behest of her cousins to help them set up the next phase of their lives. Eliza ends up at a Catholic convent and Georgiana makes a good marriage and Jane tells us that we won't hear about them again. She then goes back to Thornfield. She's worried as she arrives that no one will be happy to see her, but the opposite is true. Her return is celebrated by Adele, Mrs. Fairfax, even Sophie smiles at her. 
Mr. Rochester is happy to see her, and it doesn't seem as though any preparations are being made for him to get married. Rochester is happy. Jane is happy. End of chapter. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, this one chapter, chapter 21, a whole world unfurls in front of us. What do you feel is that we need to know to look at both chapters 21 and 22? I mean, man, there's so much to dig into here. But one thing that particularly interests me is how these two chapters subvert the definitions and lure of the Victorian notion of home. So... Home is where women were, right? Home was the place where likely if you were not a woman of privilege, you worked in someone else's home. If you were a woman of privilege, of economic privilege, the home was the only place where you had any power, you had any agency. It was the source of your identity. And pretty much it was the only place where women were allowed to be were in home. So Homes were really significant. They continue to be significant in our lives, right? I mean, it is still the place where women tend to have economic power is within their home. You know, this is a topic I'm particularly interested in. The subtitle of my last book is A New Mother's Search for Home. And I'm always thinking about whether home is a house, whether home is a relationship, whether home is a sense of oneself inside oneself and how those notions of home evolved. Well, they really evolve in these two chapters because we have Jane going back to the closest thing she's ever had to a home, to the family home, and there's nothing that feels like home about it. Gateshead is a place where there isn't familial love, even amongst the existing family members. The sisters despise each other. Mrs. Reed is just there as the sort of lonely bastion of hate, longing for her now dead, ne'er-do-well son. And I think that Jane feels like there's no longing for this home as there might have been when she was a child because there is no home there. So she needs to redefine what home is. And when she returns to Thornfield, even though that is not her home in a technical sense, and in fact, it is her place of employment, it is still where she finds love and where she finds comfort amongst fellow creatures. And she says to Rochester, wherever you are, that's my home. Redefining this notion of where I feel myself, where I have identity, where I feel power and where I feel belonging is not in an estate. It's not in someone else's belongings or where I'm expected to lay my head. It is here in your heart. And that's a really significant shift within this era, considering that, you know, home was as well for someone like Rochester. That is his economic power, too, right? He's as good as his rent rolls. The landed gentry were as good as their land, as their estate. And so to locate a home in someone else's heart, this is really reinterpreting where a woman's place is, where a woman's value is, and where a woman's power can be especially if that person is excluded from traditional notions of home. I mean, in the constant power play between Rochester and Jane, as far as money and home is so interesting over the course of these two chapters. One of the first real moments in the two chapters are when, when Jane goes to Rochester to say, can I go? He says, well, you have to have money to travel. And she is like, yes, you owe me my salary. And he's like, okay, here's 50 pounds. And she's like, no way, dude. You only owe me 15. I don't want to owe you anything. And he is at like such an impasse. He wants her to have enough to travel comfortably because he cares about her. But he doesn't want her to have such freedom that she can go without coming back. And not just in the money. He just says it like, Promise me that you'll come back. Promise me that you won't go there and find a sickly relative and be compelled to stay there, right? Which is a form of his saying to her, like, this is now your home. This is the place that you come back to from travels. And and he manipulates her to that, but he is trying to construct a reality in which she has to come back to him. 
But then what she says back to him, right, is wherever you are is my home, my only home, which is handing so much power over to him. It's not his rent rolls. It's just him who's her home. It is really interesting to me how Rochester's attempt to convince Jane that he is a home for her to return to is through manipulation as an employer. It's through coercion. He, you know, withholds money. He literally blocks the door to the room so that she can't get out. And she's she's resisting all the way through this conversation. Right. She's saying, hey, I'm not going to be bought by you. And then wait a minute, you owe me more money than that. And like, okay, whatever this game is, I'm really wishing that you would just step away from the door. So his attempts to make a home in that form are not what bring her around to this feeling. Instead, it is her going back to the only home she's ever known, the only place where she has not either been an employee or a boarding student and realizing this is no home at all because it's not where my heart is. And in spite of this bullshit behavior of his, we still get to feel that her love for him is so overpowering. Perhaps feeling someone's love for you when you felt no love or so little love and feeling seen and valued in that way is enough strength to to behave in the Christian way that she feels compelled to, as you were saying. You know, I I continue to have, I think, a far less mature impulse where I want her to burn down the home of Gateshead. I want her to, you know, that's the bed I want set on fire in this book is Mrs. Reed's deathbed. You know, that's the house I want raised to the ground because it is the opposite of a home. And yet I really do think that it is this return in this mature state where she has actually gained some confidence and a sense of herself where she doesn't have the need to be immature in her anger anymore as much as I might want her to burn it down. Yeah, she has this one foot back in Thornfield where she is cared for and respected. And she tells us, she doesn't tell us this in terms of Mrs. Reed, but she says it specifically about her relationship with Georgiana. Georgiana is really taking advantage of Jane and is like, oh, can you pack for me? Can you mend my clothes? And Jane says to us, she's like, internally, I thought, I will never see you again. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to be gracious because there's one week to it and I can rise above for a week. Like you just lost your mom. But if it was longer. So like we see within Jane this like rage and resentment. And I think it's just like I get to go home to somewhere happy and like you have to go off in the world and be you. And like I'm fine. I can put up with this for a week. And yet she leaves Thornfield knowing that Rochester intends to marry Blanche, knowing that she has just said, "Okay, by the time I get back, we need to deal with the fact that not just I, but Adele and myself are leaving this place. So if Rochester's heart is her home and if Thornfield is her shelter, she is on the verge of homelessness in a very, very real sense, in a very prismatic sense. And so I can't help but wonder if it is more an example of, you know, the sort of oft quoted Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high form of power, right? That's a form of power is that sort of Christian behavior in the face of really bad behavior in the face of immoral activity. And what we've seen from Mrs. Reed is so horrendous that Jane's high road is it's an incredibly powerful place to be. But it is also one that frustrates me because I I find her too consistent in her forgiveness. I want to know where the rage is that this is a person who on a whim declared her dead, cut her off from her deserved inheritance and is consigning her to like the slag heap of poverty for life just because she didn't like her temperament when she was a little girl. I mean, who can just say, that's fine. I'm going to kiss you on the cheek and hope that you drift off into a permanent sleep. I would want to murder her myself before she had the opportunity to die of natural causes. I mean, so Lauren, you know, I do see her anger in this moment. You know, there's just this moment where she goes, why did you do that? Right. And and then she asks again, like, why did you hate me so much? 
And that incredulity is her rage and is her resistance. The, the question to me is whether or not that's enough. I certainly do not find it cathartic enough. Like it does not feel like enough, but it does feel like we at least get glimpses of it. And then there's also this line, right? I felt pain, then I felt ire, and then I felt the determination to subdue her, to be her mistress in spite of both her nature and her will. So she's saying that her anger, her ire, her airness, right? Like was her her nature and and it has its own will and she's going to subdue it, right? And I, the question of why, right? If it's this Helen inspiration, if it's this Rochester inspiration, if it's both, if it's Christianity, if it's a power grab is all really interesting to me. But like, it's there. And I guess what I find so frustrating and why I find this scene so difficult is I resent the seeming ease with which she is able to be mistress of Ayer's nature and will. I mean, the other thing that's happening is that Jane is turning into the person who in a couple of chapters is going to have to reject Rochester. So this is evidence of her moral fortitude and evidence of the fact that she is going to be able to bear pain even when her whole body is like rising in mutiny against it. And Rochester is giving her the confidence to be the kind of person who is going to reject him. And I feel like this scene on some level is doing that. It's showing us, look, this is the same passionate woman. She is still pissed, but she has enough to like take the high road. Taking the high road is a privilege. And like she now has enough moral fortitude to do it. And he's going to regret giving her that confidence. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. talk about this death scene. I mean, I think that if young Jane were to have imagined how Mrs. Reed would die, it would be with her loving children surrounding her, right? The notion of them all cozying up together on the couch while Jane was excluded outside of it is, of course, what we conjure from her childhood. And instead, Mrs. Reed dies alone, as you pointed out, even the hired help isn't there to ease her pain in the end. John Reed, the adored son, has just committed suicide. So, of course, he's not there. Georgiana is off, you know, in a huff thinking about all the men who she should have been able to marry and hasn't and what she's going to wear for her next event. And Eliza's there running back and forth to church and wringing her hands and saying her prayers and despising her sister. And in fact, the sisters have already said to each other, the moment that our mother dies, never expect to hear from me again. I will never see you again. We will never speak again. This is over. And so the family gathering around around a mother during a time of what would ordinarily be incredibly heart-wrenching tragedy, as Jane tells us, not even a tear is shed. And it is such a different way of dying than I think we tend to have in literature from this era, which is, you know, a gathering, a deathbed gathering. This is nothing but deathbed isolation and loneliness. I, I mean, I just love that this is the inverse of a typical deathbed scene. You know, we have this idea of dying well and of pulling someone towards you and being like, I love you and I wronged you and I'm so sorry. 
And Mrs. Reed is doing like a, look, I have to confess to a couple of things so I can get into heaven. I don't want to, but like there's a letter over there. Go read it. Like, I'm sorry I didn't keep my word to my husband. Check, check. Now get the fuck out. And so I, I do love that there's an inversion of what Christianity is and of the deathbed scene. And I guess for the first time, I'm maybe understanding what Jane is up to here. It would be really horrible if Jane like took a victory lap and was gloating in this moment where Mrs. Reed is dying so miserably and in such isolation. And victory is hers anyway, right. because of the form of this death. And it, it, to me, it brings me back to this notion of home. And home is where women have power and agency and their entire lives. And the fact that after living this whole life where she had everything given to her to run this home, except for the loss of her husband, that was a major, major setback, of course. But, you know, the only bad thing that happened other than her husband dying was that she was given Jane and that was the torment of her life. And yet here's Jane doing fine and all of her cherished children are either dead or shunning her and the home that she cared so so much about keeping up is now something that on her deathbed she cannot even afford because she has given her son so much of her money to go ruin himself. Just the, the notion of sort of the roots of this tree being poisoned and the tree just rotting and dying in front of Jane. I think it's very profound in terms of an excoriation of what home is supposed to be and what family is supposed to be and how if those are not not elements of life that are nurtured ethically, they will indeed turn on us. Can I just say one thing, a moment that I feel for Mrs. Reed? When Jane asks, why did you hate me? One of the reasons she gives is my husband loved you and paid more attention to you than he did to his own children. And obviously that is a horrible reason to hate a child, but also I can imagine deeply resenting that being like, where were you when our kids were young? And like, why this kid? That was just a moment that I feel like you get an insight as to her anger and her disappointment and her marriage that I, I found interesting. I felt for that too especially when that was the domain in which she was supposed to be able to direct in a way that she couldn't. And yeah. to feel like she could not give her husband the children that he would love more. I think it feels very connected to his relationship to his sister, who she shunned. And, you know, that feeling of never being able to measure up. It's also interesting in a developmental sense, not to get to armchair psychology about this, but, you know, in our call with Adriana Herrera, who is talking about trauma and Jane's development and how that might lead her to Rochester. It is interesting to think about how in those developmental years, when Mr. Reed was around, she did actually experience love. And that gave her some grounding, that gave her some confidence and connection to herself. And then to have that ripped away was, of course, incredibly formative. But her her origins of her own power and, and elements of self-love are not as much of a mystery to me in terms of the character that Bronte is revealing to us gradually through this book. So turning our attention a little bit to these two sisters, to Eliza and Georgiana, there's this other element of Jane's power here, which I love, which is these girls who, when they were young, Georgiana was so gorgeous and Eliza was so smart and all of the servants loved them. But now they have been unable to resist giving their lives over to the power of something else, whether that is God or whether that is a man and his wealth. They're completely magnetized to these poles of either following Jesus or following whatever barren one might land at a society party and all of their self-worth, all of their ambitions, 
all of their futures are completely, completely defined by those elements and not at all by any sort of self-realization, self-actualization. And here is Jane, just like against all odds, self-actualizing the hell out of herself and being able to look at these two women who have grown apart so much that they despise each other and their lives are only meaningful in how they relate to these external definitions of value. And she finds them both so unrelatable. It's not even worth being jealous about anything or about their relationship with each other. And that also is a powerful thing that after yearning for family and sisterhood, the sisters who were the closest thing to her as sisters, even if they were awful, don't even have each other anymore. And in fact, they leave each other both feeling pretty good about Jane and absolutely despising each other for what they have chosen as their diametrically opposed values, meaning and identities. And it it makes Jane look pretty good. I mean, the other thing that we see in such a fun way is Jane walks into the room that they're they're sitting in and she's like, oh, there's the, you know, book of birds and there's Gulliver's travels and there's right. Like all of these things, they haven't moved, right. They haven't been touched. Nobody has read them since Jane has been gone. And so you get the sense that everything in this house has just like corroded since Jane has left and spoiled and, you know, been uncared for in the way that it, you're supposed to. And Jane was making a life for herself even when all she had was Burke's Book of Birds and Gulliver's Travels. And these girls with everything that they have cannot find a way to be happy. There's also, of course, some great shade thrown at Catholicism here, right? As Amy was talking about, like the difference between like Christianity of laws and Christianity of the heart. There is definitely like looking down your nose at Catholicism because Eliza is this like completely sort of vapid form of religious, right? Where she's using religion in order to give meaning to her days, but like doesn't feel it in any way. And she, of course, goes and becomes a Catholic nun and takes up orders in France of all places. And so, right, like we're just invited into like total judgment of her, that there's piety in the way that Jane does it. And then there's whatever it is that Eliza is up to here. Right. And of course, it's Jane showing us true Christian behavior. And Eliza can't even show up to check on her mother. She's just dreaming of Jesus. Yeah. And like hoarding her money and like judging everybody. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the ways that people change and the way that they don't change. And I know that you are very frustrated with Rochester in chapter 21, which I really get. But, you know, as you were saying in chapter 21, he's blocking the door and she's like, can you not? And like, can you please not control me? And then when she comes back, Rochester says to her, there you are. Come on, if you please. And I feel like he is learning the way she wants to be talked to and treated and is changing for her. As much as she is changing because of Rochester, she's not changing for him. She's still very much herself. She resists in conversation with him, right? She's much more assertive with him than she is with Mrs. Reed. But he seems to be making these concessions to her that I find lovely. And again, they might be insufficient, but he seems to me to be trying. And I, I like the effort. I like the sweat. <laughs> I don't disagree. I see it a little differently, though. I think it has more to do with the structures of Victorian social mores. I mean, he doesn't know how to fall in love with his governess. Everything is so scripted, right? There are all of the patterns and behaviors. There are the dances. There's the way that, you know, there are secret languages that women have with their fans that you can encode, but you can't encode how to just speak to another person if you haven't been led into the dance with the right steps, quite literally, if you aren't attired in the right way, and if you don't have have the same social schedule laid out, if the dinner isn't prepared and you don't know what the appropriate conversation topics are, like 
being with anyone you might be interested in is part of participating in this intensive choreography from which people do not sway. And here he is trying to figure out his way around it, right? It's reminding me of this one date I went on with a very, very, very wealthy guy. I was about 20 or 21 and he was in his early to mid 20s. He lived uptown back when like downtown was still kind of racy and dangerous. And I remember we were making out and he pulled down his pants and told me to pull a ruler out of his bag. And I said, what the hell is this? And he said, I thought you were a downtown girl. I was trying to do something edgy and kinky. (laughs) And it was like, right, because I'm not part of your country club. You don't know how to court me in any way. So you were racking your brain about something that might cross over. And all you did was make sure I'm never going on another date with you. (laughs) I feel like Rochester is doing a version of that all the time is like, well, I don't really know how we're supposed to do this because I learned all the rules and now we're not playing by them. And finally, finally, in this chapter, it feels like he's just saying, okay, I can just relax and be. I'm not going to play a game. I'm just going to love you. I love that reading, Lauren. And that puts such a wonderful spin on this negotiation between the two of them, right? He is someone who has no concept of money in Jane's life. He has her turn out her purse at one point. He says, how much money do you have in the world? And she opens her purse and she has five shillings. And we know that him dressed up as the gypsy, she gave him a shilling. So she gave him one sixth of all of her money in the world. And he is like, yeah, that seems fine, right? Like that does not occur to him. But he does have this beautiful instinct, which is like, you're going to travel. Here's 50 pounds, right? Like he wants to give her everything so that she's safe. And she's like, right, you do actually owe me money because you're my employer. And so you owe me a salary. He keeps trying, I think, to your point of He just wants to love her and it always gets weird. And then you're absolutely right. He's just so weird about it, right? Then he's like, well, then here's only 10 pounds. Give me five pounds back. I need it, right? Like he's so awkward about it. But I do, I think his instincts are so good. I love that he's like, you're going to travel, take 50 pounds. So much money. Yes, but not so much money to him. He has so much money in his wallet. And by the way, he has not paid her wages for months and months and months. (laughs) And he can just hand over this money because it's nothing to him and it's everything to her. And it's the blindness of that economic privilege and the, you know, callousness with which he uses it, which is all I can take out of that scene. Yes, I am not excusing his obliviousness about class. And I don't understand what the pay structure is. I think as a manager, like when I became the owner of a company, I swear to you, the number one rule I made was everyone will always get paid on time. Like that to me is like the moral obligation of being a manager, right? It's on you. People get paid on time. And like it is on Rochester. It's weird that they don't even have like a a pay schedule, right? Like this is wildly inappropriate. And yet she's a poor young woman in Victorian England. Where the hell is she going to go? So this money feels like, okay, you're getting paid and someday maybe you'll use it. But in the meantime, it's almost like theoretical funds and which it isn't. It's actually real money and it's money that she needs to have access to. Should she wish to, I don't know, flee the house where her employer is sexually harassing her, withholding funds and blocking the door. Exactly. I mean, imagine if this love was not reciprocated. Imagine what then this pay structure would do. So, yes, I agree with you that this is like a kind of moral failing on his part, not seeing what is going on here. And I just love your point about how hard it is for him to figure out how to seduce this woman while wanting her to consent and give her heart purely and while not wanting her to love him for his money, but wanting his money to take care of her. And, you know, like just on a human level, 
like we cannot separate the humans from the structures, but I just do feel for him. So Lauren, what are we looking forward to in the next chapters? I mean, there's a great chestnut tree. I'm excited about the chestnut tree. Oh, the poor chestnut tree. I know. I will say a lot happens to the chestnut tree and a lot happens <laughs> in the next episode. I think that we can't even talk about it. I think that too much happens for us to tease it right now, because if you don't know what's coming and the way in which it's coming, I want you to be surprised, dear listener. And I just think we all need to gas up that car and put on our seatbelts and ride into next week because it is a big one. Yeah, a lot happens too and under the chestnut tree. And I really hope that we do have some listeners who have no idea what's about to happen. I'm so excited for them. So we still had a lot of questions after we had this conversation about Jane and Aunt Reed and this deathbed scene. And the questions really were about forgiveness. Jane's ready forgiveness of Aunt Reed, at least her verbal forgiveness of Aunt Reed. And so we wanted to get a forgiveness expert in on the podcast to talk to us about Christian ideas of forgiveness and just general wisdom on forgiveness. And so we invited the Reverend Professor Matt Potts, who has a book coming out on forgiveness, and we have asked him to join us. Hi, Matt. Thanks for talking to me. I'm always happy to talk to you, Vanessa. So, Matt, I know you've never read Jane Eyre. And so I'm going to walk you through this scene. So Aunt Reed is a horrible, abusive aunt to Jane, right? She has promised her dying husband that she's going to take care of Jane Eyre as if Jane is one of her own children. And instead, she is abusive and actually kicks Jane out of the house and sends her to an orphanage and calls Jane a liar on her way out the door. Jane says to her aunt on her way out, I will tell anyone who asks that you are a bad person and I will never call you aunt again. Then they don't speak for 10 years. Aunt Reed is like, never come home for vacation. I never want to speak to you again. Then Aunt Reed is dying. She's on her deathbed and she calls Jane back to her and she says, look, I have to confess two things to you. One is that your uncle, my husband, made me promise that I would take care of you until the day I died and I didn't. And that was wrong. And two is that several years ago, an uncle that we didn't know you had wrote to me asking if you were alive because he wanted to take care of you. And I lied to him and I said you were dead. And then she says, here's the letter. I need to make this right before I die. And Jane is like, I totally forgive you. Calls her aunt again. I hate this scene so much. I don't want Jane to forgive Aunt Reed. And then the really sad part of this scene, Matt, is that Jane wants warmth from Aunt Reed. Jane, like, tries to hold her hand and her aunt's like, don't hold my hand. And Jane tries to kiss her and she's like, no, don't kiss me. You're you're smothering me. How is the way that you have come to think about forgiveness with your, like, years of research? What do you think about this scene? Yeah, this is a complicated scene. I mean, I can't tell you about this. You'll have to interpret the scene for me for yourself. I'll tell you what I think about forgiveness. So forgiveness is in contemporary kind of parlance and even in sort of contemporary psychology, it's generally read as an emotional response or emotional change. And it's usually directly related to anger. I feel anger toward you. And when I no longer feel anger toward you, that means I have forgiven you. But it seems to me that the anger thing is is its own can of worms. There's a early modern English moral philosopher named Joseph Butler. He has these sermons. He was also a bishop, and he has these sermons on forgiveness that he gave someplace in England or whatever. And in his sermons on forgiveness, like half the content is about what a moral good anger is. He says, anger is important. We should feel anger. You know what anger? You need anger because that's when you know you've been wronged. And Mm -hmm. in order for there to be justice in the world, we have to know when we've been wronged so we can insist that things be righted. 
So what he says is that anger is only bad when we abuse it, right? And it's complicated what he means by abuse. And he's really interested in preserving the right of the crown to to execute people. So it, it gets messy with <laughs> it gets messy messy with Bishop Joe, but but for him, he really wants to insist that like forgiveness is not about whether you feel angry or not. Being hurt is about whether you feel angry or not. But then once you feel the anger, you have to deliberate and decide. Okay, what's the moral response? And one way to read Butler and some moral philosophers and theologians who come after is that when your response to being hurt is to wish good, not ill for the one who harmed you, then this is a forgiving response. If I wish the one who has harmed me ill, that's not forgiving. If I wish the one who has harmed me good, that is forgiving. One question is, is Jane no longer angry with Aunt Reed? It's clear that she doesn't wish Aunt Reed ill. I mean, at least not verbally, right? Yeah. Like she tells Aunt Reed in the scene, please forget it all, Aunt, and die in peace. That's right. She doesn't want her to suffer, right? But that's actually a relatively low bar for a response to someone harming you, because you can also not want someone to suffer and be like, and also, I also don't want to be your friend or be your niece. It sounds from your description like Jane is trying to restore some relationship, trying to mm-hmm. call her aunt again, trying to repair or restore, which to me is like a step beyond forgiveness. That's a separate and separable moral task to repair a relationship with the one who's harmed you. The question I would have for you is, is there... When you say you don't want Jane to forgive Aunt Reed, do you mean that you want Jane still to be angry? Do you want Jane to still insist that she be held accountable? Or do you mean that you want her to wish her aunt ill? I don't want her to wish her aunt ill. What I want is for Aunt Reed to not be able to continue to hurt Jane. And Jane, in her forgiveness, I think is also attempting, as you said, this reconciliation. And Aunt Reed just rejects her again and again and just continues to hurt her. And I hate that for Jane. It's so painful to watch this woman who abused her and Jane so beautifully and brilliantly at the age of nine years old was like, no, I deserve better than this. And I don't have to put up with this. And at 18 is just like opening herself up to be so vulnerable and just to be hurt a second time by this woman. And it just, it breaks my heart. Yeah, that's really interesting because one of the reasons I began researching this book and decided to write this book is because I have concerns about the way that forgiveness is taught in Christian communities and in Christian theology. I want to make sure there's language within our moral tradition to actually recognize the courageous acts that, that victims sometimes take or decisions they sometimes take. And in particular, I'm thinking of a situation where a colleague of mine, it wasn't my own parishioner, but a colleague of mine had a parishioner who had suffered abuse by a partner and did not want to restore a relationship with that partner, did not want, did not feel safe with that partner. There was no ill will there. There was not like, I want him to suffer. I want him to feel pain. And she, as a Christian, was punishing herself because she wasn't, she felt she was not forgiving as she had been commanded to do. And what I wanted to say is like, no, you're forgiving. Like, and maybe the wrong words, forgiveness. Maybe forgiveness has too much of the trappings, too many of the emotional trappings that I've talked about for it to actually be used that way. But what I want to do is signal like no longer wishing your enemy harm or deciding not to wish your enemy harm. That's a, a significant moral act and one that we should be able to talk about. If only so, a person like the person that I refer to in the story does not feel shame for having failed in some way, but rather feels feels like they have done something that's worthy of of kind of recognition as I mean, as virtuous i guess i mean I, anytime you speak in situations like where we're valorizing the virtues of victims i worry about us valorizing suffering so i want to just qualify everything i'm saying with like that's not at all the intention and i recognize it as a danger in any conversation around forgiveness but it's protect people like this this person from feeling shame for failing to forgive that I want to alter the definition of forgiveness to be less about emotion, less about restoration, and more about choosing not to return evil for evil. Matt, what you're making me realize is that maybe the forgiving but self-protection, non-restorative thing for Jane to have done would have been to send back a letter when she was requested to the deathbed of Aunt Reed and be like, Aunt, I wish you well. Any news can be shared with me via letter. I forgive you. I wish you no pain best wishes that even the act of going like was this this risk of further harm i think that's right i think that i would still call it forgiveness if jane says i wish you no ill even maybe i'm sorry for your suffering yeah 
but good luck with the rest of your life because I'm not, I don't need to be there at your bedside. Yeah. It's interesting though that you raise this because there's a philosopher who likes these kinds of paradoxes that I that I read, some named Jacques Derrida, and he talks about forgiveness. He says that even as soon as we make the ask of forgiveness, or even if we reject the offer of forgiveness, by using a language that we hold in common, we come into relationship with each other. We restore relationship in some way that the mm. process of reconciliation and restoration has already started and rendered this division I'm trying to make between forgiveness and reconciliation ever so slightly impure. Because even to hear from someone say, come to my bedside, and for you to say, I'm not coming to your bedside, I'm setting that boundary, you are already caring for them. You're already like establishing relationship with them through a shared language, right? Now, Derrida likes to pose these mysteries and paradoxes, and they can be frustrating. But I think what he's pointing to is like, the setting of a boundary is always setting of a boundary within a relationship that always exists. So the line between not restoring relationship and offering forgiveness isn't as bright as I want to make it. But I also think looking for that boundary is important because it can help us protect us from the urge to demand hasty reconciliation when it's unearned or unmerited or just simply unsafe. Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for calling. You've been listening to On Air. We are a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompad. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and our associate producer is Molly Baxter. We are distributed by Acast. We would like to thank Amy Hollywood and Matt Potts for talking to us. Julia Argy, Lara Glass, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.